Amen. Great job, guys. Thank you for leading us well. Stephanie, beautiful again. And thank you for being here, for showing up. I know everybody was a little tired if you were at Boom Bash. Just by show of hands, how many of you got to come out and hang with us and go to Boom Bash last night? All right, cool. A lot of you guys, um, if you didn't get to hear it at the end, uh, and we actually had more decisions made at the end that didn't get a chance to get baptized, and then these two this morning, and uh, we had 34 people that said yes to Jesus and got baptized last night. So <laughs> praise God for that. That's awesome. Uh, one of our male counselors led a gentleman after the first service to the Lord today, and uh, so we're praying for a new brother in Christ there, several others in addition to that, 34, 35, 36, a bunch of folks getting saved. And you know, we've always said if one person comes to faith in Christ, then all of the work and the effort would be worth it. But man, I'm telling you, as the fireworks went off in the heavens last night, there was a party going on in glory for a lot of new children of God. And so thank you to all of you, staff, volunteers, everybody that came together. It took hundreds of people to welcome thousands of people and to see lives changed. And we don't know the impact uh, this side of eternity, but I'll tell you, that uh, it was incredible to see the transformation in some folks. So thank you for being a part of it. And uh, really, I hope that we have many more opportunities like that to love our community well. And by your generosity, able to do it with no charge to anybody for anything. And so what a great night. Thank you for... Uh, uh, the Lord, we were coming over here yesterday afternoon, and it was thundering, and the clouds were dark, and things were rolling. I was just praying, Lord, we don't need that kind of boom tonight. So if you just move that around us, and folks, I'm going to tell you, some of you had storms, and you just live a couple miles from here. This ground over here stayed dry, and it was perfect, and God showed up and showed out, and it was beautiful. We were like the whole of a Krispy Kreme donut, man. He just protected us. And um, speaking of donuts... There's free coffee and donuts out there. So if you start to nod off, I think they still have donuts. If you start to nod off, go get you a cup of coffee or I might call you out, okay? I'm tired too. I feel it. But um, I'm glad to be here and I'm glad to see what God's doing and that you and I can be a little part of that. We're talking about blessed assurance in our First John series. We're talking about light, love, and life with Christ. And we're learning verses each chapter. And so for chapter 3, I've chosen... Verse 16, because I know you know John 3.16. Well, this is the same author. Let's see how 1 John 3.16 reads. And I think what would be really cool is if you've, you've memorized John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting or eternal life, right? And so that's God's promise of John 3.16. Same human author. Breathed by the Holy Spirit, let's read together 1 John 3.16. You ready? Join me. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So we get a kind of a refresher or repeat. We know love because of what Jesus has done, dying in our place for our sin. But now, in light of that, we respond by giving our lives away for other people. A couple of weeks ago when we were here in 1 John finishing chapter 2, I gave you a message called Abide in Me. In fact, I think next week, hmm, I better not say. I know it's a song title and I know it's something popular that you guys will know, but I think I'm going to quote the wrong song. I think it's a Tina Turner tune, so we're going to have fun next week with that. But today, uh, two weeks ago, Abide in Me, right? As a child of God, the promise of eternal life abides in me. 
the person of the Holy Spirit abides in me, and the power of Jesus abides in me as I abide in him. So today I'm pulling from a 2018 song. The title of the song is Who You Say I Am. We just sang it, but I know it more by that very strong line, that declaration, I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. We just sang it. Now the question is, do you know that? And do you believe it? Do you really live that way? Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. His love for me. Whom the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I'm free at last because he's ransomed me and his grace runs deep. While I was a slave to sin, Jesus died for me. Yes, he died for me. Whom the Son set free is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. You know, as a child of God, I have privileges. And if you're a child of God, you have privileges. We have been blessed with four kids, Heather, Holly, Hannah, and Bobby. And being in our home carries some responsibilities and some privileges. One of the things we learned many years ago when my kids were younger is that uh, when you have four kids and you want, Cindy wants to fix something for supper invariably one of them will not want what she's cooking. Now, I know that's probably never happened in your house where your kids would say, I don't want to eat that, mama. Or when we took them out to eat about once a year, you know, we'd go to a restaurant and maybe two of them would be happy and two of them wouldn't or three would be happy and one would say, I don't want that. And we developed a very simple system in the Lewis home. When my kids said, I don't want that, my reply was, good, That'll be more for us, and if we're at a restaurant, good. I don't have to pay for your little ungrateful, snotty thing, right? I don't have to pay for you. And I know what some of you parents are thinking. Oh, how could you do that? You would want to say, oh, precious little child, what can daddy get for you? What can we get that would make your little precious attitude better? Wrong. Not in my house. In my house, if you don't want to eat what the father and the mother, what we are providing for you, guess what? You don't eat, Bubba. You go to bed hungry. Do you realize your children will only go to bed hungry a few times? Because they're going to see you're serious. They're not allowed to get up and just get another bowl of cereal. You're serious about that. And so if you don't like it in the Lewis house, you don't eat. Now, of course, we're not going to do that for Lucy. She can have anything she wants, but... I'm just telling y'all the truth. When they were old enough, now you don't, you don't do that with a little child, a toddler, but when they're old enough, here's the deal. We're going to give them everything they need because I have a call from God as father to provide what my children need. But listen, I don't have a call from God to give them everything they want. And there's a big difference, guys. Whether they choose to appropriate the father's blessings whether we're taking them to Taco Bell or somewhere super fancy, whether they choose to appropriate the blessing, that's their choice. When they get old enough, they understand that's their choice. Now, folks, let's be honest. As children of God, God has given us everything we need, not always everything we want. And so whether you choose to appropriate the Father's blessings, that's up to you. But as a child of God, we have privileges 
and we have responsibilities. And he is my Abba, my Daddy, my Heavenly Father who loves and gives me all I need. But am I living in the privileges of sonship? Am I living as a son or are you living as a daughter of the King? What does it look like? What does it look like to live as a child of God? That's a good question. Stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word and we'll see exactly what it looks like to live as a child of God. Behold, pay attention, listen up, this is important, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it didn't know Him. Beloved, now, today, at this moment, we are children of God. And it's not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, that's Christ, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he, Christ, is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested or made known to take away our sins, and in him there's no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin, but whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous or right before God, just as he, Christ, is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning, and for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil." Now watch, here's our sonship again. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible section of this letter. It teaches us who we are as children of God, what that's to look like, and I realize, Lord, with the English language, it can, in a passage like this, fall short of authorial intent. But help us to dig down to the original language, to the original hearer, that we may understand what you've said then and there to correctly understand and then properly apply what you're saying here and now. I'm grateful today that I'm a child of yours, that you are not only my king and my Lord, you are my father. And I am your son. And I don't deserve to be adopted into your family. But by your grace, you've called me your child. Father, I thank you for that privilege. Help me walk in it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, guys, I'm going to give you four realities today for those of us who are children of God. If you're not yet a child of God, you can have all of these things. But in order to understand who we are as children of God, we need to understand what the world's going to think too, because that's how John starts the section. First, I want you to see this. Children of God are often misunderstood by the world, okay? We're often misunderstood by the world. In my last message, Abide in Me, I said in verses 28 to 29 that the power of Jesus abides in me as I abide in him. Now remember, when John wrote to the Christians in and around Ephesus, he didn't have chapters and verses and all that. This is just a letter. And so in light of that, he's just talking about staying connected to Jesus. I showed you guys a plant. 
I showed you a piece of that plant that I had cut off just a few days before, and it was withered and, and kind of brownish black. It was dying. In fact, you could argue it was dead. And so there was no way for me to, to reattach that. It had been severed. Jesus has a lot to say about that in John's Gospel, chapter 15. But what we find is that when we abide in Christ and He in us, we get everything we need, all the nutrients, all that we need for life and godliness. In light of the fact that I'm connected, John now says, behold, Adon. It's a word in Greek that means look, pay attention, understand this with intelligence. He's saying this is... Um, Uber importante, if you speak German and you speak Spanish, okay? This is super duper important, what I'm about to tell you. Now look at this. What manner of love the Father has lavished, bestowed on us, brothers and sisters, that we should be called children of God, not slaves, sons, daughters. We are God's children, Therefore, because we are God's children, the world, the non-believer, they don't know us. You go, why don't they know us? They don't know our daddy. They don't know our heavenly father. How could they know us if they don't know him? You see, the context of know means sort of to receive or to accept. John used the same language over in John chapter 1, the gospel of John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. It says that Jesus was in the world, but the world didn't know him. That means they didn't accept him. They didn't receive him. And if the world rejects God, if the world rejects God in the flesh, Jesus, why would we think that the world is going to accept us? I do not understand churches that want to make themselves look more and more and more like the world. I just don't get it. Take the steeples off. Take Baptist out. Take church off the sign. Call yourself this. Call yourself But don't be churchy. Well, wait a minute. I, I know that we don't need to be all religious with long flowing robes and be legalistic, but why would the church want to look like the world? Why would we have a Christian school that we want to look worldly? We want to be distinctively Christian in all that we do. And listen, I am not going to apologize for being a child of God. I'm not going to say I'm sorry. I'm not going to change what we do. And you say, well, pastor, if you just keep speaking the same stuff from that word, it's going to offend somebody. Yes, it should, because people are living in sin and need Jesus. You say, that doesn't sound warm and fuzzy. That's not very Joel Osteenian. Good. I don't want to be like that at all, man. I want to be distinctively Christian. And to be distinctively Christian you got to call some folks out sometime. He's going to call some folks out in their sin. Just hang on, I'm coming for you in just a minute. So people around my tiny hometown of McLeansville, I went and looked at the three last census reports from McLeansville. It's a little tiny uh, community between Greensboro and Burlington in central North Carolina. The census has said that we've run between 1,000 and 1,100 in population from the time I was a little boy there. And so... Growing up in that size community, and my parents lived there for many years and had businesses there, um, people knew me mostly through my father. Oh, you're Bob's boy. Okay, you're little Bob. Or, or okay, you're Bobby Jr. I, I know you. I know your daddy. I know your mom. My mom still goes to the church today that I was brought up in and that I was saved in, Calvary Baptist McLeansville. And so it's a wonderful community church. Wonderful believers, many of the people are still there that I knew as a boy. 
But if people have come into McLeansville, not that it's grown, but some have passed on, some have moved out, and a few have come in. So it's about the same size, tiny little community, very rural area, but it's growing a lot because of Greensboro, Burlington now. Um, they, if they didn't know mom and dad, since we haven't lived there in a long time, they didn't know my folks, then they, they probably don't know me. And so you might could watch from a distance and think, oh yeah, I know that guy. But no, you, you probably don't. And the truth is, when we don't really know people, we tend to misunderstand or mischaracterize them. In fact, I would argue that we make caricatures of people. I've had the joy of preaching the gospel all over the world. I've preached on every inhabited continent of this globe. I don't know the number of countries God's allowed me to go to. I'm hoping this year with Grace Go and next year we're going to crank back up and fire it full force and be all over the globe again. We have partners on every inhabited continent. So we're everywhere but Antarctica, essentially, if you just want to do the math. And we have multiple partners, East Tennessee, North America, and the world. And what I found myself doing sometimes in preparation for a trip to a new place is I would try to study and learn about the people. But what I would find is that the books and the information would always fall short. And people are much more interesting and much more colorful. And I don't mean just skin tone. I mean the world is a big, beautiful, interesting, fascinating place. But if we're not careful, we'll characterize people a certain way. We'll color them and paint them a certain way. And the truth is, we need to get to know people. And we need to get to know that, that the world is going to look at us, Christians, and going to make caricatures of us. But the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to them that are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The word their foolishness is moriah. It's where we get the word moronic. People of the world would look at the church and say, that message of a Jewish carpenter coming to a little town of Bethlehem, being raised in Nazareth and being perfect and going to a cross as a sacrifice for sin and being the only bridge back to God and the only door to heaven, that message is foolishness. Well, yeah, it is. Until the Holy Spirit of God comes in and turns your heart and until you are drawn to the Lord because no one comes unless the Father draws in John 6, it's going to be foolishness to you. Now, why do I want to change the message to try to make it more palatable to people that already think we're foolish? We don't change the message, folks. We don't be purposefully offensive. We don't be ugly, but we don't change the message. Children of God are often misunderstood by the world. But watch this. Children of God are awaiting a total transformation. Watch. There's an already not yet tension in verse 2. Behold, now we are children of God. I'm not waiting for this. I am a child of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. So it's now and not yet. But we know that when he, Jesus, is revealed, that's his second advent, his second coming, the rapture, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. I'm a child of God. There may not be physical evidence on the outside that I've been transformed, but I know when he appears, I'm going to be like him. Paul would talk about this. You remember in 1 Thessalonians 4? He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 that this flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I've got to be changed. Corruption cannot inherit incorruption. Mortal cannot inherit immorality. But Paul said, I tell you a mystery. 
We shall not all sleep. We shall not all die, folks, but we will, Christians, be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and he says we shall all be changed. He says it again in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven and we are waiting for the Lord Jesus and he will transform our lowly body that we may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working that only he can do. And such a transformation will take place when we see him. Now in the eschatological calendar, I believe the next thing to happen is the rapture of the church. I would have been just fine last night as the fireworks were going off and we just celebrated a bunch of new brothers and sisters. It would have been cool to me if Jesus just came on. Take us back. But obviously, he's not come because he's not ready. When the Father tells him, he'll step out. The sky will break and we will be transformed. And those of you that think, oh, that's not going to happen next, that's fine. What do I tell you? When I'm going up flying away, I'm going to wave and smile and go, ha, I told you. See, that's all right. But that's next. Jesus can come and we will be changed. But there's an already not yet tension. I'm already a child of God, but I'm not yet fully transformed. And so what happens is the world looks at us and thinks, ah, you're not real. What's well, because he's not finished with me yet. I'm a work in progress. My wife says that a lot. I'm still a work in progress. And he's working and she's working and a lot of other people are working. But it's hard work. I get that. There are a lot of Christians that can't accept the lavish love of the Lord. They just can't take it. They think they got to work their way up to God and be this and do that. And the reality is you get on this treadmill of legalism or I say the cul-de-sac of Christianity. What's a cul-de-sac good for? You just go round and round and round and round. I mean, you just get on. It's like the treadmill. We have one at home, but why would I want to walk on that thing? I'll, I'll end up right where I started. That's just goofy. I mean, come on. People do that in their Christianity. I'll just put in enough effort and I'll work my way right to God. Listen, my children didn't work their way up to being my children. They just are. They just are. The Israelites had a terrible time with this. God said, hey, I'm going to give you some good things. I'm going to give you this thing called the Sabbath day. I just want you to take it easy. I want you to rest. I want you to recharge your batteries. And you know what Israel did? They made all of these stipulations. Well, you mean rest, Lord? Does that mean we can take 10 steps but not 12? Does that mean we can move to three seats but not four? What does this mean, Lord? You see, they added all of these rules, and that's what Christianity seems to do sometimes. But biblical Christianity doesn't do that. Biblical Christianity says, wait a minute. We are being transformed into ever-increasing glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18. In an instant when Jesus comes back, we will be complete and metamorphosized. But now, we're a work in progress, progressive sanctification. And folks, we've got to remember that history has an end point. History is moving toward a climax when Christ comes. This future gives a great hope and a great stimulus. Think about it. Prince of Wales, Prince Charles... He has something on the horizon. His mother, Queen Elizabeth II, is not going to live forever. And either through abdication or death, do you realize, unless he chooses to abdicate to his oldest son, Prince William, do you know that Prince Charles will immediately become the king? You don't even have to have a coronation to make it official. That's ceremonial. The moment 
the moment she passes the queen, he will become the king. So he has this future promise. He's not quite living in it yet, but all of his life has been shaped by it. The reality is one day we're going to be just like Jesus, changed into his likeness. I've been living with this promise most of my life. I can currently enjoy the privileges of sonship as an adopted child of God. I have nothing to fear. I have nothing to hide. Knowing my future gives me great confidence, but I'm not there yet. And so what happens is the watching world who doesn't know us because it doesn't know our daddy, the watching world cries hypocrite whenever we fall. And it's not that Christians don't fall. It's just we fall forgiven because my sin, past, present, and future is cleansed. See, as Christians, we're not asking for sinless perfectionism. We know we sin. In fact, if we say we don't sin, we're calling God a liar. His word is not in us. But it's when we fall, we have the hand of God to help us back up. Now, what we don't want to do is give the watching world reasons to call us hypocrite. So we want to live in a sense of consistency. We're going to be misunderstood by the world. We're awaiting total transformation. Well, how do we avoid all the cries of hypocrisy? Because sometimes we just get irritated. Sometimes you can see a bunch of folks get saved and celebrate, and a few minutes later you want to offer the Hawaiian wave to somebody in the parking lot who just cut you off. I'm not saying any of y'all did that last night. I'm saying somebody wanted to, right? How do we avoid those cries of hypocrisy? Number one, I don't worry about them because I'm living my life to please one, so I'm not worried about it. But number two is actually number three. You ready? Children of God avoid habitual sin. We avoid habitual sin. This is one of the, this passage highlights one of the, the challenges that uh, translators live with. Translators are coming from, in the New Testament, Koine Greek, the language of Greek, the common language of Greek of the day, and they're moving across to English. The problem with English verbs and the problem with our language is that it's not quite as full and pregnant, if you will, as the Greek. And so we don't have the full range of tenses in verbs that Greek had and, and has. So in 4, 6, and 8, I'll do the even numbers and then in a few minutes I'll do the odd numbers. You'll see these admonitions to us, this teaching, and it really could be confusing if we don't go back to the original language. Listen to this. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. That makes sense. You're breaking the law of God. And sin is lawlessness. That's an easy verse. But it gets tough in 6 and 8. Whoever abides in Jesus does not sin. What? Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Verse 8. He who sins is of the devil. Uh-oh. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. What in the world does that mean? Well, look, the verb tense usage is really instructive for us. The sense of the verbs here means this. No one who abides in him, Jesus, continues in sin. We're in a warfare with sin and cannot live comfortably with sin as children of God. John is not contradicting himself saying that Christians don't sin. The first two chapters of the letter make it clear. The text means we will not adopt a willful lifestyle of unrepentant sin. 
The verbs are present tense, meaning we don't sin and keep on and on and on sinning. doesn't mean we never fall, but we don't keep laying down on the ground. We get up. We will sin at times, but we will not settle for a lifestyle characterized by sin. We will not adopt the extreme lifestyle of the false teachers of John's day who had blatant disregard for sin in their life and said, oh, it's covered. Jesus paid the price. I don't have to worry. That's not what true Christians do. You see, Paul would say to the Galatians in Galatians 5, the works of the flesh are evident. Things like adultery and fornication, uncleanness and lewdness and so on and so forth. And he said, if you, listen to this, if you practice such things, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And what does it mean? You know, you know what it means to practice. You know what it means to keep trying something over and over and over. No, 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 no. We don't practice deeds of lawlessness. We practice acts of purity. We practice acts of holiness. Remember the context. Some false teachers said, real Christians don't sin. And John said, no, that's not right. Other false teachers said, real Christians do anything they want to do and it doesn't matter. And John said, no, no, that's not right. In the middle, we find liberty in Christ that says, yes, we will fall at times. We're going to make mistakes. And as Paul would say, I'm the chief of sinners. I make mistakes a lot. But I'm not living for the mistake. I'm not living in a habitual state of sin. I'm living with a higher plan and a purpose. Sin is evil to the core. The author of sin, the diabolos, the slanderer, is a liar and the father of lies. And there could be a temptation to water down the word of God at this point. We have some of America's most well-known pastors saying, eh, I don't want to talk about sin. That's going to turn people away. Where are you going to turn them, Bubba? Deeper into hell? Talk about what the Bible says talks about sin is of the devil Christ came to destroy the works of the devil he came to destroy the devil's deeds so living in sin and being a Christian are mutually exclusive the Scottish author and professor F.F. Bruce gave a helpful illustration he says when a boy goes to a new school that school has a tradition or a good name and maybe that young man doesn't understand the way things work at that school, and he does something out of line, only to be told by someone in the school administration, son, that's not done here. Now, a literalist comes along and says, but wait a minute, that is done here. The young man just did it. But that's not what the administrator means. What the administrator means is, this is a different kind of place. We don't do that kind of thing in this place. Those of you that are parents, I hope you have standards. I hope in your home you can say to your children, no, we don't do that here. That does not apply in my home. That does not gel with who we are. You see, as Christians, there are just some things we say that doesn't happen in our lives. The British author and minister David Jackman wrote this, that the implications of this passage are clear. Fellowship with a sinless Savior, abiding in him, and continuance in our sin, keeping on, keeping on sinning, are mutually contradictory. No compromise is possible. So the logical conclusion we draw is this. Listen, we cannot expect to be confident on the day we see Christ if we're complacent about sin in our lives here and now. If you're complacent about sin, you should not stand confident. 
Children of God are misunderstood by the world. We're awaiting a total transformation. We avoid habitual sin, continual sin. And finally, children of God practice righteousness because Jesus made purity possible. We don't practice lawlessness and sin. We practice righteousness. Now we go to the odd verses to see this truth. 3, 5, 7, and 9. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. How do we purify ourselves? Well, verse 5, you know that he was made known, manifested to take away our sins. In him there is no sin. Keep going. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as Christ is righteous. So just like these Olympic athletes that practice, 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 practice. We are practicing righteousness to do the right things. Whoever has been born of God, verse 9, does not continue in sin. For God's seed remains in him. And he can't continue in sin. He's been born of God. See, if you're going to live in my house, you're going to abide by my rules. Yes, the kids will mess up. Yes, the kids will be disciplined, but I can promise you if they want to enjoy life in the Father's house, they will abide by the Father's rules, and everybody gets along. And so what we find here is we begin to understand that we are going to pursue Christ-likeness, purity, holiness as he is holy. The Holman New Testament commentary said our weak commitment to absolute holiness stems in large measure from our dim perception of who Jesus is. And who we've become in him. See, when we walk with Christ, we walk with the one who's destroyed the works of the devil. He has no power over you. You're not a slave to sin any longer. And John is dealing with a big, big issue here. He's saying, look, Jesus came to take away your sin. Now, how did John know that? This John heard it from the lips of another John, John the Baptist. This John in John 1.29 heard that John say when he saw Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. This Lamb, a sacrifice once and forever to not only clean sin, but to clear it out, to do away with it. And he was the sinless substitutionary sacrifice. That is the heart of the Christian message. Many have said this phrase. It's a beautiful statement. Sin is inconsistent with sonship. Sin is inconsistent with sonship. Now, yes, we're going to fall in sin, but we shouldn't like it and we shouldn't live in it. We want to practice righteousness. So the important question in light of all this then is, is this question. Who's your daddy? Now, I know that phrase, you look it up in the Urban Dictionary, I don't suggest it. It has some weird connotations. But who's your daddy? You know, my father had a standard in our home. A strong Christian work ethic was a, a standard in my house. And now for my son, before he went to play football the other night, guess what? He got behind the push mower to get the yard straight. And then he went over and helped one of our other pastors at his house. My son, my girls, there's a standard. There's an expectation. And you don't just do things to get things. You do it because of who you are, not what you're going to get out of it. Who's your daddy? 
Am I living as a son or daughter of God? Do I really know that my sins have been cleansed and taken away? Yes, I have key moments in my life. You do too. Maybe a response at an evangelistic meeting. Maybe the signing of a commitment card. Events like baptism or being received as a member of a local church. They have a place in our spiritual pilgrimage. But that's not what John's asking. John's saying, are you practicing sin or are you practicing righteousness? Do you abide in him or do you abide in sin? Do you keep falling? in a particular area in your life. You see, we get frustrated. But I want to encourage you this morning, confess your sins, and then concentrate not so much on avoiding that sin as maintaining a close, abiding relationship with God through Christ. Practice the right things. Children of God are often misunderstood by the world. We're awaiting a total transformation. We avoid habitual sin and we practice righteousness because, yes, Jesus made purity possible. You know, he even made perfection possible, but that's on the other side of glory. I'm going to close with a story I read many, actually many years ago before I ever knew we'd be living in Tennessee. It's about a seminary professor who was vacationing with his wife in Gatlinburg. One morning, they're eating breakfast at a little restaurant, hoping to enjoy a quiet family meal. While waiting for their food, they notice a distinguished-looking gentleman. He was a white-haired man moving from table to table, just visiting with folks. So the professor leaned over his wife, and he said, Man, I hope that guy didn't come over here and talk to us. I get that. But sure enough, the elderly gentleman came to their table. Where are you folks from, he asked in his Tennessee drawl. And they said, Well, we're from Oklahoma. He said, It's great to have you folks in Tennessee. What do you do for a living? And the professor said, Well, uh, I I teach at the seminary. He said, oh, you teach preachers how to preach. And he said, yeah, well, kind of. And so the gentleman pulled up a chair and sat down and said, I have a great story to tell you. And the guy thought, oh, man, just what I need, another preacher story. So the man started. Y'all see that mountain over there? He said, yeah. He said, not far from the base of that mountain, there was a boy born to an unwed mother. And that little fella had a hard time growing up because everywhere he went in that small community, people would say, son, who's your daddy? Truth is, he didn't know. Whether he was at school or at the grocery store or the drugstore, people would always want to know the same thing. Son, who's your daddy? He'd hide from the kids at recess. He didn't want to be picked on for not knowing who his father was. When he was about 12 years old, a new preacher came to that little fella's church That boy would always go into the service late and slip out early because he never wanted to hear that question. Who's your daddy? One morning, though, the preacher prayed fast, and he got called in the line. And sure enough, when he came to the new preacher, put his hands on that little fellow's shoulder, and there came the dreaded question. Well, hey there, son. Who's your daddy? He could feel every eye in that little country church, peering right at him as everybody became deathly quiet. What was he supposed to say? But the new preacher was pretty discerning. He picked up on things. The preacher, still with his hand on his shoulder, said, Oh, wait a minute, son. I know who you are. You're a child of God. Congratulations. Now go and enjoy your inheritance. And the old man said, You know, that changed that little fellow's life. Said, for the first time in a long time, that little kid started to smile. 
And any time anybody said, son, who's your daddy? He'd just smile and say, I'm a child of God. Yes, yes I am. The distinguished gentleman got up from the table. He said, now that's a good story, isn't it? The seminary professor actually smiled and said, you know, sir, that really was a good story. Thank you for sharing it with us. And the old man made his way out of the restaurant. Well, the seminary professor and his wife were pretty stunned that a man would share something like that with them. And so they called their waitress over and they said, did you see that white-haired gentleman who was making his way around the tables? Who was that fella? And the waitress kind of laughed. She said, well, everybody knows him around here. That's Ben Hooper. He's the former governor of the state of Tennessee. And that was his story. A true story. Governor Hooper would say, you know, if that new preacher had not told me who I really was, and had let me understand my identity as a child of God, I guess I may have never amounted to anything at all. Somebody needs somebody to remind them, you're a child of God. Because some of you, you, you may not know your real father. You may not have a good testimony about your earthly daddy. But I'm here to tell you that if you will believe in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will have a father who will never leave you nor forsake you, who will be a friend who sticks closer than a brother, a very present help in time of trouble, a refuge, a shield, a fortress, a stronghold, one who will love you all the way to glory. Do you know the Heavenly Father today? I say yes. Yes, I know him. Do you have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ? I say yes. Yes, I have that. Have you accepted God's free gift of salvation? Yes, I have done that. Do you know that you know that you know that you're going to be with God in glory? I say yes, not because of anything I've done, but all that Christ has done. I can say yes to all of it. I am a child of God. Yes, I am. And I'm not the only one. Y'all stand with me this morning. Listen, if you know the Lord, you can't help but let that ooze out on your face sometimes, right? And I know it says Baptist on the sign, but sometimes you ought to just raise a hand and say, I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Some of y'all puckered up so tight, if Jesus came in the room, you couldn't say praise the Lord. I just want you to know that you know that you know. Man, there's nothing cocky about it. It's confidence in Christ, the finished work of the Lord Jesus. Here's what I want you to do. If you need to know Jesus, just like that gentleman did in the first service, all you got to do is come. That fellow came in the first service and asked me one question. Do you really believe God can change people? With tears in his eyes, that's what he asked. I said, I know he can because I'm a living testimony. And Cindy said, amen. <laughs> and we put him with one of our wonderful male counselors. In just a matter of moments, just, just 10, 15 minutes, that dude went from a path toward hell to a guaranteed place in heaven. And, and yeah. The Lord, the Lord is changing people around here, folks. 
And we got pastors and counselors standing by, ready, excited to share Jesus with you, just like last night, excited to see transformation happening, to take the first step of faith in this journey. So I'm going to ask you, if you want to come, come. You can come now. You can come when Cindy and I are over at the kiosk. But I'm going to ask us to do something else. Some of y'all need to come back to the Lord. And, and here's what I ask the first service to do. For anybody that's willing, a lot of times we pray, Lord, Lord, give us good weather. Give us a good turnout. Give us some souls for the harvest. Give us a good event. Give us a boom bash and let us celebrate. And then God shows up and shows out and life is changed. And it's an incredible event. And we forget to say Thank you. There's a rule in the Lewis house. When the father provides, you say thank you. And the mama. When we provide, you say thank you. I know you're grateful. I want to hear it. If you were there last night and you're grateful for what God did, and it'll help some of these other folks that need to come forward. When I say amen, and Jeff begins to play and sing. Would you just spend a moment to come down? Just get on your face before God. And say, God, thank you. I think we ask for so much sometimes, but we fail to follow through with our appreciation. I think we should have a full altar in this service as well. With grateful people for a big and gracious God. Father, I thank you that I am your child. I'm amazed that you would adopt someone like me, the least of these. I've seen that Olympic commercial at least a dozen times with that precious little girl that was born with problems with her legs that would have to be amputated. And I see that adoptive mother's heart that said it'll be hard, but it's so worth it. And celebrating the Olympic accomplishments of that athlete in the Paralympics. But God, we've got something better than a gold medal. We've got golden streets to walk on one day. We've got a home with our Heavenly Father and our brothers and sisters in Christ, some of whom have gone before us, some of whom may follow us. We've got the promise of eternal and abundant life now and forever. If there's anybody that needs to say yes to Jesus today, I pray they'll come. Just like they came last night. And I know there were a lot of distractions and a lot of movement, a lot of talking, but you still showed up and people still got transformed. And today, even as some come to express appreciation, I hope many will, because we often fail to, to thank you after the fact. But I pray that some would come and become part of the family of God for your glory, for your praise, for the growth of your kingdom. I ask this today. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.